Hi everyone, it's Bev. I'm the host of People at Work. Uh, People at Work is a podcast brought to you by Jostle. And at Jostle, we are a tech company that is trying to connect people to everything that matters to them during their workday so that they can ultimately be successful in all the things they come to do at work. And at the same time, we need to understand what is happening in the world of work. So we have conversations like the one I'm going to have today to help us understand uh, themes, trends, changes, attitudes, just everything that is happening for people in this rapidly ongoing, changing world of work. Um, a lot has changed for us in the last 18 to 20 months at work. And, uh, you know, I, I think that every conversation we can have will just help us as leaders to continue to build these people-centric workplaces that we know is so much needed right now. So I'm delighted to welcome Angie Bergner to the show today. Angie is the VP of People and Business Operations at Veris Insights. So welcome, Angie. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Bev. And yes, it's been two years. I, when I hear you say it, it's just a reminder of how beautiful, like, you know, the good parts of this have been. It's just the networking opportunities and the relationships you build. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you and I have gotten to talking on a number of occasions about all manner of things. I've just been watching what you've been doing in a very progressive way with your team. Um, but I know that you're very dialed into uh, what's actually happening on the people upside of things. And in particular, you and I started chatting a few weeks ago about the whole notion of stay interviews. And so... Right. I'm just so delighted that you were willing to come on to the show to actually talk about what you're doing at Various Insights about this very important aspect of people relations, which is getting feedback and then taking that, internalizing it as an organization and then actually acting on it. Let's get started with just an understanding of why stay interviews are something that you've been doing for quite some time in your organization. It, it, it predates the pandemic, I, I understand. So. Tell us a bit about oh, your philosophy sure. there. Yeah, I think, you know, there's plenty of research out there, I think, at this point that really shows, for example, that supportive managers, open communication are always these top two factors in creative, creating a positive company culture. For us, at least, stay interviews, which have been, to your point, I've been doing them before the pandemic started. For me, stay interviews are probably the most important lever that I have to really nurture that open communication that ability for us as a people ops team to really train, nurture, and support people managers on the factors that employees actually care about. Because it's one thing to just kind of guess and, you know, look at our employee surveys that I think a lot of organizations do. I think when you hear it live and it's on a reg regular and consistent cadence, it's such an important lever to really nurture that ability to have that open communication that we know from research is what employees really want to feel motivated and to feel like they want to stay in an organization. I think outside of that, though, I've always been a champion of stay interviews because for us, it's really also a retention tool. And I know, Bev, you and I have talked about this as far as how interviews really play into retention. We're able to get ahead of challenges. It's allowed us to make decisions based on what people want and not just based on what we think people want and need because they're telling us. So for us, Stay interviews really provide a sense of consistency. They provide a sense of expectation that our team members have, that they know once a quarter they have this set space to talk about their career and to talk about their overall satisfaction with their role, with their organization. And that's been a super valuable tool for my team. Yeah, it really sounds like it's a core listening channel within your organization. And 
um, I'm sure it really served you well to already have had that channel established before the pandemic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because then once the pandemic hit, I think it just created this sense of security for our team to know, okay, our people ops teams, they know us, they've been listening to us, they know what we're worried about because of stay interviews. And once the pandemic continued, they were like, okay, we know that we have this space once a quarter. And so they're going to be with us through the entire process of the pandemic. And it's not reactive, it's proactive because they're already used to it. So it's not something that we had to put in place, figure out, test out, does it work? Does it not? Like it was just part of what we did. And I think it gave people a sense of security. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. And, you know, if I think about my own organization and the way we are structured at Jostle for listening, um, you know, I think we've had a more of an informal approach to this and we really rely on our team leads or our middle managers to be looking for those cues and to be having those probing conversations with people in an informal way. But we just recently decided that we were going to formalize this way of gathering feedback from our staff members. So we, a few weeks ago, embarked on our own stay interview um, process, which um, you very, very kindly gave me some coaching and guidance around what you're doing um, at, at Ferris to, to help you in that endeavor and some of the things that you've learned along the way. But I think for us, it was really just about realizing that we need to have a structure in place that actually supports the feedback. And even though it does take a fair amount of time, um, having that one-on-one -on -one with someone that isn't necessarily with their manager, I think is a very healthy way to start to really understand across the organization um, what sort of themes, trends there are emerging, as well as any potential individual red flags that you might be able to spot where someone's not doing well, um, especially now in the pandemic where we've got more of these um, emotional stresses happening for our, our people. So let's talk a bit about how you actually conduct your interviews, like maybe just to help people who are listening to the, the, the interview today around, um, you know, like Jostle, um, we're very new in this process and we're learning how to do it. So um, how did you think about structuring your interviews and maybe just give us the, the high level, like what is your process to, to actually conduct these interviews on a quarterly basis? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I'll say is over the last couple of years, especially once the pandemic hit, to your point, Bev, like I've really been able to support a lot of peers and clients on getting their own stay interviews set up and running. And the first thing I really work on is understanding their current state as an organization and their desired future state. Because one thing that I'll say when it comes to methodology is that it's extremely important when we think about it is that stay interviews are not a one size fits all initiative. They're going to look very different at Varys than they do at Jostle, than they do at any other organization. And so while timing, cadence, ownership um, are really best finalized through a custom approach, the methodology around a couple factors should be consistent. And that's really where my process usually starts is we go, for example, like consistency on the type of topics that we talk about in our say interviews. So every team member on at Veris really knows and understands the categories of questions that are coming on any given quarter. And so for us, they typically come with bulleted lists ready to go, right? They know here's what people ops is going to ask us. 
And then for us, those topics, for example, are firm-wide. So for example, are there any questions, any concerns, anything that we can clarify for you from a firm-wide perspective? This could come from a monthly town hall, from our weekly all-hands team meetings that we have, or in general, right? That they see something on Slack that was firm-wide, that they were like, wait, that doesn't make sense, or I don't understand. And sure, they can go to their manager, but they also know that they have this safe space with people ops once a quarter. Then we do a check-in on role, team, and future at the organization. So we talk about overall happiness in their role. Are they still feeling challenged? Are they still feeling like the expectations of their role are being met? Um, we'll then kind of open up space to talk about how they're feeling about their team. Is your team operating really well? Are you still feeling like your team is going after the same goal? Then we'll really transition into how are they feeling about their future at the company. This is probably the most important part of what we do in a say interview. So we talk about things like, do you still see a clear path for yourself here? Do you feel like you know what you need to do to reach the next level of your career here? Are you feeling comfortable having those conversations with your manager? Do you still see yourself here for the short term, for the medium term, for the long term? And this section in particular is where a lot of what comes in is trust and psychological safety. And again, this is what I tell every person that I kind of guide through stay interviews is that the process is kind of set, but the pre-work is really, you have to have a level of trust and psychological safety for your team for them to actually be able to share with you during these stay interviews, things that are gonna be valuable. So our people puts an incredible amount of trust in me and my team because we worked really hard to establish that trust so that when people come to us for stay interviews, if they are considering a new job, if they're considering about leaving, they actually share that with us during stay interviews without that fear of consequences, with that psychological safety piece in mind. And that's really helpful because then we're able to workforce plan. We're able to retain people. We're able to say, hey, that's great that you're looking at other organizations. If, if we're not able to give you what you want, let me know and I'll be the first to tell you. But if it is something that I can support you with working with your manager, then let's talk about that. And that piece has been really helpful. Yeah, one thing that really stands out for me in what you've described is that you've actually got the supportive, trusting culture already in place, which is what enables you to have these productive, honest stay interviews. And I think exactly. that's a really important piece for people to start to think about is it's not just bolting on, oh, we're going to have these stay interviews once every quarter or once every month or six months or whatever. You've actually got to be intentionally building the supporting culture that creates that psychological safety in order to be able to have really honest and productive conversations. So I think that's, that's really what it comes down to for me is the first question is, have you got the basis of trust already established? And maybe you need to be building that trust first before you start having this type of conversation. Otherwise, it may that is fire, right? That's exactly what it is, Beth, because like you said, we can create the mechanism, right? We can create the space. We can put the Zoom call. We can set the conference rooms if you're doing them in person. Whatever the mechanism is, we can all put it in place, but... We can't force people to be open and to be honest and to actually share their challenges and their concerns and what they're excited about, what they're fearful of. And so if and only, you know, each organization can answer this for themselves. 
if you already have that culture of trust, that culture of psychological safety, then it's really just about the operation side of it, right? The mechanics of it, who's doing them, the conversation that me and you had, right? As you were thinking about bringing them into Jostle is how do we actually do this? But if you really sit back and reflect as a people ops team or whoever will be taking the lead on these, and you really think about, okay, let's look at our employee service. Let's look at any other mechanism of feedback that we have. And if we feel like that level of psychological safety and trust is not quite there yet, that's okay too. But let's work on building that first. And then let's worry about the same interviews. Otherwise, you're going to get superficial answers. And I guarantee then we'd, they'd be coming back and saying, well, Angie and Bev said this would make a bit, really big difference, but it's done nothing for us. That might be why. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell me, if do you think that the stay interviews replaces engagement surveys? Like, would you? No, so I don't think they do. So, you know, we're a market research company. So we live and breathe data day in and day out. And so I think employee engagement surveys play their part in what they do. They give you real live data. They give you a benchmarking ability. They still do all of the things that they need to do. To me, that's the quantitative side, right? The, for the most valuable part, at least for us, of our, of our engagement surveys that we do is the quantitative side. To me, the stay interviews is our qualitative equivalent to the employee engagement survey. So to me, it's part of this bigger system. It's part of this bigger process of, okay, we have our quant, we have our quantitative uh, data that comes in through our employee engagement surveys that don't happen as often. At least for us, we do them twice a year. We do them halfway through the year at the end of the year. That's good for long-term high level, you know, benchmarking purposes, but doing these quarterly is informing with qualitative data what's coming out of our quantitative data, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. And thank you. That That is a very clear explanation. And I I personally am not a, a an advocate for engagement surveys. I'm a bit cynical about them. Um, but I really like how you, you made the distinction there between having the ability to gather a, a, a different data set that is actually a quantitative data set, which as I've come to realize by conducting these stay interviews myself over the last little while here with our team, um, it is going to be quite hard for me to start to distill down and analyze this this very, very personal data that we're gathering. And yes. um, my next question for you would be, um, can you help me understand, like, how are you actually combing through your responses and what you're hearing and then extracting what you believe are the salient themes or topics or flags across your your um, employee base. Absolutely. And I think the follow-up and the follow-through is the hardest part of this whole system. So the follow-up and the follow-through is the is the work that comes after the actual sessions, the actual stay interviews. And that's the most critical part of this whole process. So we take all of our qualitative data that comes in from the stay interviews um, now, you know, whatever system you utilize to really gather that data is also just as important. I personally use Trello. I love Trello board. So I literally have a private Trello board where all this qualitative data goes into. But then what we do with that qualitative data is then we take it and we analyze it by team and by level. And so that qualitative data then gets organized by team so that I can put them into themes. I can pull out the themes, which then get presented to function leads. So 
I look at, for example, all of my researchers across three different research teams. I look at my member experience team. I look at my growth team. And so I'm pulling out themes from everyone within each team. And then I pull out those themes and I present them to function leads. I do monthly people ops function meetings with every function lead. Part of what we cover is stay interview themes. I take names out of them, specifics out of them, because I guess I should have said this in the beginning. I set the stage going back to the trust thing that anything that anyone shares with me in a stay interview or with my team is fully confidential unless we both agree that the best way for me to help you and to get the process moving is to bring someone else into the process. But that's a decision that gets made between my team or me as the one conducting the same interview and that person. And so it's already stated and the expectation is set that for the most part, everything is confidential. And so I pull out themes. What you'll start to see, especially you as you're now starting, but what you'll see quarter after quarter or however often you're doing it is that you do see themes per team that you feel like, okay, growth seems to be having a communication hurdle right now, or MX is having a, you know, a, um, you know, a lapse in the way they're getting information through different channels or whatever the theme might be. Then I'm able to work with each function lead to really work through, okay, new initiatives, changes, areas of, of opportunity, strategies. And then that's really being created in a way that's based on what the team's actually going through versus a guessing game. Where the employee engagement survey data is really helpful, even though I'm with you, that I am not a big fan of them as I'm not a big fan of them in general, but where they do come in really helpful is what you'll start to see is that some of the qualitative themes that come out, you're going to see in the scores out of your employee engagement. So you're going to see, okay, if this team is rating either the organization or their team a little bit lower on trust or psychological safety or uh commitment to career development, then I'm able to go back and pull out qualitative notes from people and say, well, this is probably why they're rating it so low because they're telling me, you know, oh, we run out of time in our one-on-ones every week and my manager just doesn't have the time to devote to career development, for example. That's something that usually comes through in stay interviews and not through the quantitative employee engagement. And so now I'm able to put those two things together to really help my function leads and managers put initiatives that make a difference and not just have it be a guessing game. Yeah. And I think that is one of the key things around what's been interesting for me as we've been embarking on this process is not letting it be a guessing game and also not making assumptions about what you feel is happening for an individual or a team within an organization. And I think as leaders, we have to do that to some extent, um, in order to operate and you, you need to be, you know, thinking about what you, what people might be feeling. But the key here is what are they feeling? And I, I think that's, that's the big step that people have to take here as leaders is park your own observations, park your own biases and actually just get to what people are actually feeling. And I, I get that the engagement surveys would, would be a good baseline for that. And I, I think, um, as we're talking here, you're actually convincing me that <laughs> there is a place. There is a place for engagement surveys. I'm I, I'm just about to publish a blog article, which is a very scathing um, observation about employee <laughs> engagement in general. So <laughs> maybe, Wait, maybe you know, today. I'm with you, Beth. 
I am with you, but I do feel like they have their place because they, it shouldn't be the only thing you utilize, but I do think to your point, it's a really good baseline because I'm a big, and again, I'm biased because I work at a research company, but to me, you have to be able to tie quantitative data with qualitative data before you can get a full picture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Angie, just wanted to probe a little bit about, um, we, you talked about confidentiality and you talked about your process. And as I understand it from your, your process as it stands, that you are the one who is conducting all of the interviews across your organization. For people who are listening, who might be thinking about starting to do this type of, of work, um, would you advise sort of breaking this down into a working group or do you think having one person do it is the optimal way to do it to protect the integrity of the data and the relationship with people? Um, the reason I ask is because at JOSA, we, we actually decided that four of our senior executive team would be the ones who would conduct the interviews. And so we have four of us who are different representatives across the business um, who've taken a portion, a random portion of, of each of our employees and are conducting the interviews. And where possible, we've tried to make it that the person who's interviewing is not interviewing someone who is a direct report to them or is within an extended team that would touch them on a daily basis. So like, if people are trying to think about, well, gosh, I've got a hundred people. If I have to do all of these interviews on my own, that's going to be a lot of time. I don't have time for this. What are your thoughts? Like pros, cons to one person, many people, like, what are your thoughts? I mean, in an ideal world, it's, it would just continue to be me. That's not realistic though. And I know we talked about this when we were talking about your process of you know, right now it's just been me, but this is probably realistically the last quarter where it's going to be able to be, to be just me because it's, you know, 30 minutes to 45 minutes with each individual person every single quarter. That's like a whole month out of each one of my quarters where that is literally all I'm doing. And it's super valuable. However, it's not scalable. And so I do think, as we were talking about earlier, this shouldn't be a one size fits all. So I like your approach, for example, right? Like you chose four executives. They're going to be doing it at random with a couple of safeguards, right? Making sure their drug reports are not doing it with them. They're extended teams. I think that works really well. One thing, the way that I'll be kind of continuing to build out, at least for us, that will work is that people ops will continue to own them but that we're gonna do it by level. So one thing that I really started to realize as I've been doing these for many years is that the level of guidance coaching that um, an entry level early career professional needs is different than what our, for example, middle managers need or what our executives need. And so for me, it'll make sense that I keep a subset and it's probably you know senior managers, managers and above and where I train people ops, learning and development team members to really be able to help me by doing entry-level associates, um, senior associates, because usually the themes that come out of those people are more career development, genuine, they want a career coach. How do I approach a conversation about a promotion with a manager? How do I make sure that I'm having more visibility across the organization? That's something that I'm struggling with, for example. Those are topics that... I can coach my team on. I was a career coach for 10 years before I this role. So like for me, I'm not the only one that can provide that support. My team can provide that support. As we get higher, 
the level of strategy, the level of sensitivity across the issues that my senior managers, my directors, my VPs need is different. And so I'll continue to maintain those and eventually train probably the my team members who already got their experience with their early career professionals as they move up and as they get more experience, they can also start to help take some off the managers, senior managers, VPs. But I also don't think that's the only answer. To your point, you're doing it slightly different. And to me, it doesn't really matter who's doing them as long as you're building that trust, as long as they have that psychological safety, and as long as on the back end, you all have a really good organized way of bringing all this data in and having a clear understanding of how do you analyze that data to be able to pull out themes. And to your point, what do you do with those themes? Because if you're just intaking all this data, but there isn't any action that comes out of it, you're you're actually hurting yourself more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's really where we are in our process now is, um, you know, we've, we've got for the next three weeks, we will be completing our surveys and uh, then we'll have a period of time where we will, as a you know, working group, we'll distill what we've heard um, and then make a presentation to our executive team around, well, this is what we heard. These are some of the things we think we should be thinking about. And we are then going to share that with the broader um, staff base so that everyone knows what were some of the things that we heard. And then we're going to make some commitments as the senior leadership team. You know, what are those two, three, four, maybe, you know, no more than that, really significant things that we're going to be focusing on so that we can say, we heard you. We've digested what we've heard, and this is how we are acting, and we're doing this as a collective. Um, and I think that's really one of my biggest concerns about whenever you embark on, on a survey process of whatever shape or form, if you're not prepared to act on what you hear, you shouldn't be doing the listening. You shouldn't be doing the asking. Um, so help us understand a bit about as you go through the analysis process, what are one or two things that you've done in the past where you've shared the results and then acted on the results? Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an important part of this. What I will say before I give you an exact example is you also in this process and the way that you prepare your team, your team members of saying, hey, we're going to start doing these interviews. You're going to go through these once a quarter is really setting the stage of what is feasible and realistic and what is not. And so we make sure I make sure to tell people like, look, that's your space. You can literally tell me every single tiny concern that you're having, but doesn't mean that I can actually solve every single tiny concern that you bring to me just because I'm giving you this space. Realistically, that's not possible. But what I can promise you is that the things that I think will have the biggest impact and that me and you really diagnose as the core objective of what you want, that those are the ones that we will tackle and the ones that I'll bring up. But can I solve everything just because you, you know, you bring it up in a stay interview? No, like I want to make sure that we build that expectation together because I don't want to disappoint you. I want you to be able to trust me and I want you to bring these concerns to me, but I cannot solve every single thing, but we can make progress towards the big thing. So I think that needs to be part of that whole process. As far as something specific that came out of stay interviews. So we have an unlimited PTO policy at um, at Varys. I love unlimited PTO. I believe we all should own our time, that we are responsible adults. We are very much an outputs company versus an hours company. However, we are not immune to the research that shows that having an unlimited PTO policy sometimes means that people take less PTO. 
We are not immune to that, right? We research best practices around recruitment. So we know, we know the data, we, we, sh we consult members on this data. And so what a theme that started coming through the stay interviews, I, I believe it was like a couple quarters into the pandemic was, you know, we say we have this unlimited PTO policy, but we don't feel like there's actually that space for us to feel like we can take the PTO for a variety of reasons, right? So I pulled out themes on, okay, why do we feel like that's the case? Because we tell people they can take PTO whenever they want. Part of the themes that came out were a couple things. Modeling. Well, we don't see senior leadership taking a lot of vacation, so we don't feel like we can. And then another thing that came out is work calibration. So we don't feel like our managers are spending enough time calibrating how much work we have on a given week, on a given month that would allow us to plan that far in advance because we're a startup. So like we move incredibly fast. There's always more work than there are hours in the day. Um, and so what the themes were coming out is that we weren't doing enough on those two levels to make people feel like they could take unlimited PTL. So based on that, that came out of stay interviews in one quarter, our leadership team got together and we're like, okay, how can we solve for these two things so that people do feel like they can take unlimited PTL? Some of the, like the actions that come out of it can be small, right? So a small action step that we could have taken was we created a Slack channel that's literally called PTL. We made a we set the expectation that leadership, when they take PTO for whatever reason, that if they feel comfortable, please post a picture, post a story, post how you're utilizing PTO so that people see it. They actually see pictures. They see you on the beach. They see you spending time with family, whatever the case may be. So that action came straight out of it. And it's probably one of our, our most utilized channels at this point. Secondly, we created word calibrations that happen weekly with every single manager. So at, at, during their one-on-ones with every single manager, they go through a form and they say, looking at your schedule this week, where do you feel like you are? Do you feel like you're at a sprint? Do you feel calibrated? Do you feel light? Do you feel like, you know, you are at severe? Like this is not sustainable and we need to do something about it. That came directly out of stay interview themes and it's happened every single week. And just making the expectation that managers are having that conversation with every single one of their direct reports has made a huge difference in people feeling like we actually prioritize work-life balance and we don't just say, well, we have unlimited PTO, so you should just be able to feel comfortable taking it. Yeah, that is a curious one. And, uh, you know, obviously it's it's becoming more documented now around how that's working for people or not working. And I, I think what's what's really lovely about that example that you shared is that it shows a direct connection between feedback understanding and action. And I think it's it's easy to be overwhelmed by everything you hear in the stay interviews. And yes. to your point, you can't solve every single gripe or problem that someone is bringing to those interviews. And I've myself have found my response to a few folks around, I hear you, but this is not the forum for me to solve every single problem that you're raising. And just starting on that premise is really important, right? It's you're not going to be able to solve every single thing. But what you can do is solve for the high impact things that are going to have a significant um, impact on the most number of people. I, I think that's ultimately what you have to get to. And then understanding if there are things you can do with individuals who you are hearing um, either concerns or issues with that, that you can then escalate in a trusting way with their team lead or manager whatever the case may be. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. And some of the things that people come to me with are very specific to that one person. And it doesn't mean that I hear it and we don't do anything about it. But to your point, it just means, great, you have it out there and I can support you. It might not be me, but, you know, is it an L&D opportunity? Is it that you're feeling super stressed and you need me to connect you to resources we already have? Even just opening that space, you'll find that in the middle of those stay interviews, even though you're not making a firm wide action that comes out of it because it's not a theme, you're still able to help that one individual person, which you might have not gotten to if you didn't have this space for people to be able to share. Absolutely. And it's it's a coaching opportunity as well to encourage those folks to improve their relationship with their manager, to be more confident in having a conversation with their manager, um, you know, helping them realize that they're not the only one feeling that way oftentimes. Right? Exactly. So, um, you know, I, th I think you've made a very good case during the time together here for why we should be doing these conversations. Um, in closing, I wanted to just briefly ask your opinion about the great resignation. And we've obviously, I mean, as a people ops person, you can go very far these days and not see the great resignation right. we talked about. Um, so to, like, to what extent do you think conversations like stay interviews are actually going to help us um, not, not necessarily retain people, but create cultures where people actually want to stay? Like, is it going to make I mean, a difference? I mean, honestly, Bev, I think the reason why we've been able to retain our people the way we have through this whole right, great resignation, turnover, tsunami, whatever you want to call it that we're all going through, a big part of it is the stay interviews. I might not be able to retain every single person, but I have had so many conversations with my team members of like, look, I know you're getting contacted by recruiters left or right. We all are. That is part of this great resignation. And I want you to have those conversations. And if, if there is something that they are offering you, if I can match that, I'm going to do that because I want to keep you. But if I cannot, then at least we can have a conversation about it. And so I do think it's a it's, it correlates directly to our ability to retain people because it's going to make people think twice, right? They're going to think, okay, this opportunity sounds great, but Am I going to get the same culture? Am I going to get these opportunities in a trusting, psychologically safe environment that I currently have at our organization? I'm taking a gamble if this other company is going to provide that for me. And even if it just like causes them to pause long enough to really reflect on, you know, what are you getting here that you might not get somewhere else? It's made a difference for us we're not immune to the great resignation and it's going to continue to happen. So anything that we can do as people ops leaders to retain our really exceptional talent, it's worth a shot. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, and looking at it from the other perspective of hearing as leaders, what employees think about your organization and the things that you are or are not doing um, is equally important, right? Like it's, it's, it's probably going to be eye-opening the first time you do it and the subsequent times because, you know, we all operate in, um, you know, with our our illusions to some extent of how we believe yes. the culture is being experienced and the things that we're doing to create these safe, engaging work environments. But until you actually ask people who are the end users of that environment and, and contributors to that environment, you can't make assumptions about it. So, um, you know... I think it's amazing that you've been doing this even before the pandemic. I think 
it's okay if you are just starting out to do them. Um, I don't think that people listening should feel like it's a reactive thing um, in order to prevent the great resignation. I, I think, like you said, anything you can do to listen um, is, right. is important. Um, but I think to just close off here, going back to something you said earlier is you do also have to be intentional about the type of culture that you're creating as the baseline for being able to have these conversations. So um, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about your thoughts. And, um, I, you know, I'm, I've always been uh, watching what you've been doing um, at Veris from afar and, and admiring your your individual humility and courage as a leader. So thank you for that. Please don't stop. Um, and yeah, any closing thoughts from you on the, on the topic? No, thank you, Bev, for having me. I think this is such an important conversation and, you know, ditto right back to you. You know, it's been so wonderful to follow you as well over the last couple of years. And I think the, the last thing I'll leave, I'll leave your listeners with is to your point, it, this is, this is an area of opportunity for us as leaders to understand that ignorance is not always bliss. We always will have assumptions of, oh, everything is fine. And if we open up this can of worms, are we ready for acting on it? And the truth is you're never going to feel fully prepared and you cannot wait until you feel like you can solve every issue that comes through or else it'll never happen. So have the humility to say, hey, there are things that I can control, but things that I can't control, and that's okay. Excellent advice to wrap us up. Well, thank you so much, Angie. You take care, and we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Bev. It was so nice chatting. And you take care. Thanks for listening to People at Work. If you enjoyed the episode today, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it. We'd love to get this material into the ears, hearts, and minds of as many listeners as possible and would really appreciate your help. Until next time.